Hello, and welcome to podcast number 10 of Lead, Travel, Pray. My name is Sandy Schneider, and today our topic falls into the travel bucket of Lead, Travel, Pray. We'll be talking about island travel around the world. Rebecca Ellis and Michelle Strike are joining me today to share some of our favorite stories from our island adventures. Ladies, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Looking forward to it. I think we would all agree that we have been blessed to have the opportunity to travel to many fantastic locations around the world. However, when we think about some of our favorite destinations, I think islands tend to top the list. Today, we're going to take a virtual trip around the world, stopping at some of our favorite islands to share stories about our own personal experiences that have truly touched our lives. Well, we have to begin our adventure somewhere, and what better place to begin than my former home, the beautiful state of Hawaii. I'm sure most of our listeners know that Hawaii is the 50th state to join the United States, most recently uh, in 1959. However, People may not be aware that the Hawaiian archipelago actually includes hundreds of islands in Hawaii, over 1,500 miles. However, most visitors visit one of the eight main islands. In fact, in 2017, 9.3 million visitors visited the state of Hawaii. And when they're in Hawaii, one of the most popular places to stop is my former home, the island of Maui. Maui is the second largest of the Hawaiian islands and is referred to as the Valley Isle. Maui is known for its diverse landscape. It has uh, the volcano Haleakala, it has rainforests which produce lots of waterfalls, and well-renowned beaches in both the Wailea and Ka'anapali resort areas. Lots of people spend their holidays on the island of Maui, but not everyone has an experience where it's spiritual in nature and it's also a lesson learned. But Michelle, I think you've had one of those experiences. I have. So in the spirit of not being completely redundant with our first podcast, where um, we were able to spend quite a bit of time talking about Maui and our adventures, I really reflected on um, one of the things that I really loved about my um, two trips to Maui was the slower pace of life. And the fact that um, you kind of follow the rhythm of nature. So it's easy to get up closer to when the sun rises and to be ready to go to sleep when the sun um, goes down not that long afterward. And um, so that in and of itself just created a slower pace of life and allowed me to kind of relax and take things down a notch. Now, I will say that both times I was there, it was vacation. (laughs) So I wasn't like Sandy where I was trying to work while being there. However, um, my second trip to Maui, I uh, received a job offer for um, the job that I'm in now, literally on my layover on my way to Maui. And um, so my lesson learned was that it would have been really easy for me to just say in the moment, yes, I will take this job. But I also felt like I needed to take a couple of days to clear my head, 
to take advantage of the slower pace that I knew would be um, my experience sitting on the beach. And um, so that's been a lesson learned that I've taken um, back home with me when I do need to make important decisions. I really try to take a day or two before um, saying yes or no or not now even. And um, that has helped me make decisions less from a place of anxiety and more from a place of feeling good about what I'm doing. And I would say that even now, if I'm in my own house making an important decision after a day or two, I still feel that same relaxation that I felt on um, the beaches of Maui. So the faith component of that for me is that in that quiet, that is where I can hear God and helping me make some of those decisions. When I'm um, really anxious and just go, 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 it's much harder for me to hear what he would want me to do. So instead of pulling out a a sheet of paper and doing a pro-con list, I have found, which is what I used to do back in my 20s, I have found that just taking a step back, taking a day or two, embracing the calm, letting go of the anxiety of the decision is when I hear God and can trust that what I'm feeling is Him. Hmm. Not only did you have a wonderful beach vacation, you had... Uh, the time to really relax, to spend some time in prayer, to spend some time really thinking about what was the right next step for you and how wonderful that you had that job offer that that you caught in travel to the island of Maui um, that later you, you had the opportunity to accept. So fantastic experience. Thanks for sharing that, Michelle. Yeah, you're welcome. And both of you got to be a part of that process and hearing me kind of talk it out, which is extra special as well. <laughs> We did have a good time on that yes, trip. Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like I had a, a spiritual experience myself, uh, a unique one in Hawaii, but not necessarily on the island of Maui. So I'm going to take us to a, a nearby island. Not everyone may be aware that Maui County is actually made up of four different islands. Um, and they can be seen from the island of Maui. And I'm going to take a, a, us on a short hopper flight over to the island of Molokai. Molokai is uh, referred to as the Friendly Isle. It is not one that um, most visitors actually um, spend time visiting because there aren't a whole lot of uh, hotels or resorts there, um, not a whole lot of tourism activity that's going on. While it's a significant island, it has a small population. Um, the, the census data appears to be actually old. It's from 2000, but there are only 7,400 people on the island of Molokai at that time. So it's a, a fairly sparsely populated island. Um, some may be familiar with it um, based on its historical significance. And a book that was later written called Molokai, a novel by Alan Brennert. Um, so for those of you who may not be familiar, in the late 1800s, uh, Molokai was used to form a leper colony. Today, we refer to mm. leprosy as Hansen's disease. But in the late 1800s, there was the, this disease was rampant, and it was highly contagious. And um, the only way 
at that time that they were able to deal with this was to quarantine individuals who were diagnosed uh, with Hansen's disease. And of course, if you're going to quarantine people, you need to have a remote location to do that. And so on the um, northern uh, side of um, Molokai is the Kalaupapa Peninsula. Kalaupapa is the name of uh, the area where the leper colony was decided to be. And you might imagine if you want people uh, against their will uh, to have to stay here, you don't want an easy way out. So to get to Kalaupapa, it is a peninsula off of um, the island. There's steep cliffs on one side that lead to the rest of the island. And then it's water all around you. And it's not like you can just swim to a nearby location. So once people were brought on ship to Kalaupapa based on their medical condition, that was where they were to stay the rest of their lives. As you might imagine, these were individuals who through no fault of their own came into contact with this disease, who had to be separated from their family members, um, who were shipped to this unknown location. And at the time, there was nothing there. It was a remote fishing village. There, were, um, there weren't buildings. There weren't resources to house people. They actually had to build their own place shelter. They had to um, build their own substance there. Now, um, you may be familiar with a couple people who um, really helped to organize and create structure in Kalaupapa, and that was Father Damien and Mother Marianne Cope uh, from the uh, Catholic Church that really led um, creating an environment where people could live. Because some of these people coming over were children. They were going to spend their entire life in this area. Um, and so they built structures and homes and hospitals or medical clinics, as well as schools to provide education. Um, these, these, um, the facility at Kalaupapa was actually um, habit inhabited until 1969, when um, they were no longer required to stay there in Kalaupapa in isolation. So when you think about how much time, how many years went by that that this was all these individuals knew, it's it's really fascinating. Now, because I lived on Maui, I was well aware of Kalau Papa and um, understood that there was a way to tour that area. Now, this is not not like normal tourism. It was actually very challenging to sort of figure out how to be able to get access and how to be able to tour the area. But I was able to do that. And as I mentioned, to get to Kalau Papa, it's not easy. <laughs> it's an isolated place. So you have to get down these very steep cliffs. And you have three ways to do that. You can hike down. Now, don't think like paved hiking trail here. This is like winding down a very steep cliff. Alternatively, you can ride donkeys down the steep cliffs, or you can take a plane ride. Hmm. Which option do you think Sandy opted for? The plane. 
<laughs> the plane, the plane, yes. Um, yes. So I traveled with my parents. We did take the plane. Um, we met up with others for the tour who came in on donkeys. And based upon the condition that they arrived, we, we were fresh as we got off of an airplane. And these people have been on a donkey for quite a while. They're muddy. They are tired. They thought. <laughs> Felt like they were risking their lives on donkeys, slipping on rocks, going down a cliff. So if anybody goes, I do recommend taking the airplane. Um, I expected for the tour to be historical in nature. I expected a religious component because I knew being raised in the Catholic Church, I, I had some familiarity with the Catholic Church's role in Kalaupapa. But what I didn't expect was the spiritual experience that I had there. There is a feeling that you get when you are in Kalaupapa, the significance of that place, how many people lived there, how many people died there, how many people spent all of their living moments in isolation there. Our tour was led by uh, a local Molokai man who... Uh, did a great job of sharing the history of the place, who knew people who lived there, um, and was able to really share sort of the heart and soul behind Kalau Papa with us. And when I got back to Maui late that night, after a, a full day of sort of excursion, um, I just felt tremendous gratitude for the life that I have the privilege of living, a healthy one with medical resources um, where I have the privilege of being surrounded by friends and family members and do not have to live in isolation. So it was, um, for me, definitely a spiritual experience and one that highlighted for me the many reasons I have to be thankful. Yeah, a really good way to get perspective, Sandy. I like your story. Thanks. So if anybody is interested in knowing um, more, I do recommend the novel called uh, Molokai. It's uh, really well written. It's based on historical things with a fictitious character. So uh, check that out if someone is looking for a good read. Awesome. Thanks, Sandy. So another one of my great Hawaiian experiences, which was not necessarily spiritual in nature, but fascinating nonetheless, happened on Hawaii Island, which is also known as the Big Island of Hawaii, because, of course, it is the largest in the Hawaiian chain. And it keeps getting bigger uh, due to the recent eruptions of Mount Kilauea. If you haven't been to the island of Hawaii, it's really easy to get there as there are two large airports, um, two, I shouldn't say large, two airports that service the mainland. So you can fly from uh, cities on the mainland directly to Hilo on the east side of the island or to Kona on the west side of the island. Um, and there are uh, resort areas in both of these places. And the fascinating, fascinating experience I had actually happened on uh, the Kona Coast. The Kona Coast is one of two um, uh, main places where you can actually view manta rays. Man are you guys familiar with manta rays? Mm-hmm. 
the marine life. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, think uh, stingray, only bigger. Really mm-hmm. large uh, species. In fact, the largest of the species can reach 23 feet in width. So these are very large oh animals swimming through the water. Um, and because there's only a few places in the world you can see them, this is a popular uh, thing to do on the Big Island. So what this looks like is it's a night snorkel uh, because you need to have a reason to bring the manta rays up to where uh, humans would be able to see them. So what they do, you actually go out on a snorkel boat um, in the at dusk in the evening, and it gets dark, and the boats put out these really bright lights into the water, and that attracts the plankton. So now the plankton come up in the water, and the manta rays feed on the plankton, which means the manta rays mm. come up to the surface of the water and... Um, eat, swallow uh, the plankton as they sort of gracefully swim by. So here's what people do. Um, They actually um, put, the boat puts out this sort of like big metal thing um, that you hold onto. So you float on the surface of the water and you have your feet on noodles. So imagine laying on top of the water, holding on in the front to a large metal bar coming off the back of the boat. And in the back, your feet sort of resting on a pool noodle. And when we were doing this, I was surprised. I had snorkeled before. I was comfortable in the water. The night, the darkness didn't bother me because there were big lights out into the water. And so I was like, do we really need to put our feet on this noodle thing? And they made a point of saying, yes, everyone has to do this. You don't want to come into contact with the manta rays. You don't want to accidentally kick Mm. one because it would be like kicking a concrete wall. These are are massive, huge uh, animals. And so I was like, okay, 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 fine. So my feet are up on the noodle and then you wait. So you're just hanging out in the water, face down, snorkeling, just looking, waiting for something to happen. And sure enough, the manta rays very gracefully come up um, and swoop in to get the plankton. And this is happening right below you so you can see it. Um, And it's super cool. Like when they come up about 10 feet below you, you're like, wow, this is amazing. And it makes you feel really small. Um, And then they get a little bit closer. And now they're maybe three feet from you. And you're like, whoa, this is awfully close. And then they get even closer. And as comfortable as I was in the water, I totally get how people can freak out because I was like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Um, I had faith that that manta ray knew what he was doing. He knew how big he was and he wasn't going to hit me and I didn't need to hit him. So I just froze in place with my eyes wide open, um, trying to take it in and trying not to, to, to freak out and, and close my eyes. Um, and I have to say it was one of the most amazing experiences. I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to do that and certainly encourage anyone who has the opportunity to visit uh, the Big Island to, to head to the Kona side and check out the manta rays. You've intrigued me enough to consider it, Sandy. 
Um, if you yes. if you Google it, you'll be able to find some pictures and some video that probably do it uh, much more justice than than my story, <laughs> but uh, super cool. Awesome. I'll look for some to add to the show notes. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, yes. Rebecca. Okay, okay. So I could spend all of our time talking about Hawaii, but we've got a lot of islands to see on this adventure. And because this is a virtual trip around the world, we can now whisk away to the beautiful Caribbean Sea where we find uh, the island of Cuba. And don't worry, you are not going to have any jet lag on this significant flight. (laughs) Uh, So we are now landing on the island of Cuba, which is an island nation under communist rule that has just recently opened up, reopened up uh, the opportunity to visit uh, to U.S. citizens. And Rebecca, I know that you have been one of uh, the lucky individuals who have taken the time to go visit the island of Cuba. And as as I recall, you actually had a fascinating experience there and uh, learned an important lesson as well. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Sandy. So we visited Cuba in um, early July as a part of a cruise. So we didn't actually stay all night in Cuba, um, but we did visit Havana and a bit of the surrounding area. And the important thing to know, although especially for U.S. citizens, it is now legal for us to visit. There are certain um, kind of standards or regulations by which we must abide in order to visit. And so part of that is being on an educational tour. And our educational tour had more of an artistic uh, bent on it. So that was kind of the interesting experience. Uh, One of the places we visited, I'm going to maybe mess it up, but Fusterlandia or Fusterlandia, Um, But it's Jose uh, Fuster, and he is a mosaic glass artist and basically transformed this entire home, pool, um, a separate little house, all with mosaic. Like every square inch of this place is covered in glass mosaic. So it's really fascinating. Um, The artist himself spent time in Europe kind of learning some of the trade and brought it back. Um, So I'll post pictures in the show notes of it. But It was really just in the middle of a very normal um, subdivision or um, residential area. Kind of like Graceland. If you've been to Memphis, you pull up and you're like, wait, Elvis lived here amongst the common folk. Uh, The same for this. So it's this major kind of museum right in the middle of a very normal neighborhood. And because of that, people have now sprouted up little businesses around it because um, charter buses, et cetera, come down that way. Um, But one of the things that was an aha moment for me in Cuba as a whole, and um, specifically some of the restaurants and bus tours that we were on, is that it is just such an under-resourced country that um, they don't invest in things that even we would consider basic needs. So it's up to the consumer or the traveler to take, for example, toilet paper into a restaurant or onto your bus for the bus restroom. They don't have the money to um, spend or they don't choose maybe to spend the limited resources they do have in that way. And so it's really more up to the consumer to know that. So thankfully I'd been given a bit of a warning on that, but um, similar to lots of Europe, you might end up having to pay to go to a restroom. So even at this 
museum, you had to pay then to also use the restroom. And there was an attendant outside taking that money for you. Um, so we hadn't actually, um, you know, thought so much about that and how we might um, carry smaller bills or things that were more easily um, to pay for those, those types of services. So anyway, that was an aha moment and a learning. And um, honestly, just didn't know how destitute the country really is. And the average income is 40 US dollars a month. Wow. And so not a, not a day, um, definitely not an hour, but a month. And so you think about, you know, toilet paper is not inexpensive. And so that's just um, the types of things that were trade-offs that we had not anticipated, but still worth a visit. Definitely lots to see. And it's truly unspoiled still. And that's main reason we wanted to go before it got uh, kind of more um, common to visit there and maybe a little more touristy or commercial than we wanted to see it. So still highly recommend, but take your toilet paper <laughs> with you. <laughs> Good advice. Cuba's actually on my um, travel list, hopefully um, in the next year or so. I definitely want to check it out. And I appreciate knowing that I should bring my own toilet pa paper and be prepared to pay to use the restroom. I yes, will pay absolutely. whatever it takes. Right? <laughs> absolutely. Yes. At that point, you're kind of captive uh, audience. Yes. Now, while the three of us might be partial to warm tropical islands, the reality is that excellent travel can happen on any island. Uh, so, Rebecca, I'm going to ask now that we leave our quick visit in the Caribbean and head north far north to Iceland. Iceland is a Nordic island nation that's defined by its dramatic landscape with volcanoes, geysers, hot springs, and lava fields. There are actually massive glaciers there that visitors have the opportunity to visit, to view from national parks. And uh, Rebecca, I know that you and your family had an opportunity to visit Iceland where you had the time of your life. You know, we really did. I have to say that Iceland was not a bucket list visit for me and truly kind of not on my radar. And it was our 15-year-old at the time who suggested that this was a place we really needed to visit. And I think she had picked that up from listening to other kind of travel vloggers. And um, she was spot on. It, it's an absolutely amazing destination. And in fact, we're headed back there again in January um, over Martin Luther King break because we just need more hot springs in our life and that we found a, a good flight, a cheap deal. And so we're taking a little girl's trip with uh, two of her friends and some moms. So I'm super excited to get back to Iceland. We had just a two day stay there. It was a layover on Iceland air as we were flying to Paris. And so we just took the advantage of the extended layover, which is like having two vacations in one. So um, really good time. It's a very relaxing country. Um, it's definitely very progressive in terms of social causes, and um, ha that has made it a very artistic and open feel. And um, they're definitely very welcoming of tourists because it's been a huge boost to what was a fairly troubled economy. Um, the Blue Lagoon is probably their most famous attraction, and when I was researching it, I, I found that there were a number of hot springs, and frankly, I'm a bit 
frugal. And so I wasn't sure I wanted to spend as much money as the Blue Lagoon costs, but it was absolutely worth every penny um, when I understood more of the experiences at some of the maybe lower cost options. So we're headed back to the Blue Lagoon again, and I can't wait for that. And it's actually very near the airport. So we took a tour bus out to it, but we actually already had our own rental car. And had I known now, uh, or then what I know now, I wouldn't have taken the bus because your own rental car gives you a lot more flexibility to come and go. And it's probably less than a 20 minute drive from the international airport there. So, um, and, and good roads, so not um, anything complicated. They do worry you about the roads a bit because trying to get out to some of the glacier spots and geysers and such, you get into roads that are not, you know, typical, especially for us Americans and our paved um, I grew up a country kid, so gravel doesn't frighten me much, but you know, some of these roads and, and the same for like, I remember, uh, Maui, right. They would say, well, if you're going to go down this way, you might get into some tough stuff. So anyway, the one thing I will say to just be prepared for is, um, the cost of food. So if you think about it, it is a volcanic island. Um, it is a relatively new geological formation. And because of that, there aren't a lot of trees and things rooted in it. And um, there's not much native there. So when I think about the good sides of that, no mosquitoes, no spiders, no snakes. They're not native. They haven't been imported and they're non-existent. That also means there um, are also things not existent like chickens and cows and pigs and the, you know the foods that we're more regularly um, used to eating and so because of that those things carry a very expensive import cost to them so you can get some amazing seafood lamb stews um, things on that order quite inexpensive but I'll never forget our very first breakfast we ordered a couple eggs maybe uh, one of the kids got a side of bacon I got a pastry um, I think someone else got a bagel and it was the equivalent of like $78 U.S. Wow. for what probably at Denny's would have been like $22 to feed the four of us. I mean, we weren't any of us eating like a healthy, you know, helping of anything. And when we looked at the exchange rate and what we paid, it was like, whoa. Um, so we got smarter about let's eat the fish. Let's eat, you know, let's try the lamb stew. Um, those things were definitely much more economical. So, yes, that's my thought on Iceland. It is a cold um, island. It's actually not terribly cold, though. I mean, I think parts of uh, the United States get much colder than they do. So, anyway, we're excited and hoping to see the northern lights in this next visit. Uh -huh. That is a bucket list mm -hmm. for many yeah, of us. Nice. We look forward. Mm -hmm. We look forward to hearing about that, Rebecca. All right. Well, I will be sure to report back on how that goes. So in case any of our listeners are now shivering, uh, let's head back to warmer destination. Uh, so get ready for some more jet lag free travel as we head to the island nation of Indonesia. Uh, I had the opportunity to visit Indonesia as my sister, brother-in-law, and two nephews spent um, about four years of um, their life living and working in Indonesia. Um, so Lombok may not be an island that you're familiar with, but it is one of the many islands that make up uh, the country of Indonesia. It is east of Bali. Bali is the one that 
uh, our listeners are probably most familiar with, the one that draws in uh, the majority of the tourists. Um, but right next door is Lombok. And there's a lot of similarities between Lombok and Bali in terms of uh, sim- being similar in size, islands, and in dense density. And when we're talking about density in Indonesia, we're talking about density. So on this small island in 2014, they had 3.35 million residents. So when you think about Molokai that had a few thousand people and a very large island, you've got Lombok that has 3.35 million people. So a highly dense, um, high density Indonesian, um, Asian location. Now, like Bali, Lombok is known for their fabulous beaches and surfing spots. So you get a lot of surfers there. Now, it was not surfing that brought um, me and my sister's family to Lombok, but simply an opportunity to have a relaxing holiday. And that's exactly what you can have on Lombok. So there's less uh, tourism, less visitors on Lombok. So there's just a slower vibe. And because it's um, got beaches, uh, we certainly spent quite a bit of time in the water and on the beach. And one uh, important lesson that I learned in Lombok occurred one day when we were walking along the beach. And my two nephews, who were both young at the time, were sort of bebopping ahead of us adults who were sauntering um, on the, the water's edge on the beach. And at the time I was living in Maui and familiar with uh, black sand beaches from the the volcanic island. And so it didn't surprise me at all when I saw black sand on the beach. And I just got really excited. I was like, oh my gosh, black sand, right? This is a black sand beach. And that's what I thought was the case until I noticed that as my nephews who were ahead of me, right, they're, they're running in the sort of wet sand and they're foot goes down, right, crunches down into the sand, and it leaves footprints because this is where the water has come up on the beach. Um, And I noticed that the sand was black until they stepped their foot in it and sank down an inch and then pulled their foot back up, and it was sort of a normal brown-colored sand an inch down. And as I looked at that and thought, what is happening here? It occurred to me that this was not a black sand beach, but rather a dirty beach, um, a beach with waste that had discolored the top level, the top layer of sand. Now, this is not shocking in Lombok that doesn't have a good way to manage their their trash on the island. And so uh, they burn a lot of it. And you there's sort of a, a, a scent of burning materials, including burning plastics, that occasionally you get a whiff of um, when the wind blows on the island. But it was um, that day that it became so clear to me why we need to uh, focus on the health of our oceans. I, growing up in the United States, have only been to nice beaches, beaches um, where people cared for the land around it, um, where we focus on recycling where we can. Um, Indonesia is not in that place. And so, of course, you're going to have garbage that is going out into the ocean. 
that has a tremendous impact on the beach, but on the water in the water and the coral as well. The coral reef there is um, badly being damaged, um, and it's super sad to see broken coral lying on the the ocean floor when you're snorkeling because of the damage that we humans have done. So my important lesson learned that I had to get um, from going to Asia was um, all of us have a responsibility to take care of our oceans. And uh, it was a good reminder for me and, and hopefully now a good reminder for our listeners as well. Yeah, it makes me um, think, Sandy, about when um, you and Rebecca and I did um, the beach cleanup day um, when we were visiting you and picking up trash on the beach. Yeah, absolutely. We did that on Maui. And that was something that the community did regularly. Um, And I don't, do you remember the biggest thing we found? I I don't remember. Mm. It's a lot of little stuff. Mainly little stuff. And so we would get excited, right? When we're like, yes, I just found like something big, right? Like maybe a plastic water bottle. And you're like feeling really proud of yourself because you didn't just pick up cigarette butts. You just, you found a water bottle. (laughs) And um, Mm. in Indonesia, it's very different. I mean, it would be like just taking your, your garbage for the day from your household and just dumping it out. Um, And ultimately that runs into our water, Mm. water source. So take care of beaches, everybody. Yes, please. Um, So near Indonesia, we've got a really big island. In fact, it's its own country and its own continent. Uh, So let's take a short, short flight over to Australia, where Rebecca, I think you were pleasantly surprised. I was. um, I would have been more pleasantly surprised if it was indeed a short flight, but I like this virtual daydreaming that we're doing (laughs) uh, because it was about 24 hours of travel to get there from where I'm based here in Indiana. But um, absolutely, we're pleasantly surprised by Sydney. And I know, um, Sandy, you visited there as well. It hadn't really occurred to me. I was traveling for business, and so I don't do as much research on where I'm going it seems like, right, when I know I'm going to be in meetings and uh, maybe a little more heads down and not in tourist mode. But I did end up with a, a day of free time. And I frankly had no idea how Sydney was so close to beaches. So I knew it was on water. But we have a lot of places here on water, too, that aren't really beach cities, like New York City and San Francisco. Um, But Sydney truly does have the climate that allows it to be a tropical destination. And so one of the days that I had a little bit of free time, I took one of the hop-on, hop-off buses and rode out to Bondi Beach. And it was uh, one of my favorite days of the year this year. Um, It was just a very... um, What's the word I want to say? You know, I'm thinking like freestyle and like the, you know, hang loose man, uh, the the hand uh, gestures for all of that. I'm not cool enough to know any of them, but um, that was the environment, right? It was a very beachy, like people like living in their Volkswagen vans uh, pulled up to the side of the road, um, surfers hopping in and out. And um, just the feel of the space was was really neat. The shops around there. Um, so I had a chance to eat lunch outside and just kind of watch people getting in and out of the water, stopped a little bit later down for some gelato and set out again, just observing, um, kind of people coming and going, but it is a really beautiful area and 
I couldn't really think of a great comparison here in the U.S. where you get that big city metropolitan feel and also this tropical beachy kind of destination. So that was the pleasantly surprising part for me. And I do hope to get to return and be more of a tourist there in the future. Um, if I could do a quick plug for Sydney, I had the opportunity to climb the Sydney Har- Harbor Bridge. So when you go back, Rebecca, check it out. Very cool. I watched many people come off and on it. And I did actually sit at a roofside bar uh, one afternoon. Um, and it, it does look like a lot of fun. I didn't have the time uh, to spend because I think it's a few hours yeah, of an experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, looks super cool. And I, I would definitely like to do that someday. Beautiful view. Well, we like the South Pacific here on this call. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we're going to spend our last minutes here on the podcast in the beautiful islands of French Polynesia, where Michelle, you and I had the opportunity to visit just a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the most popular islands of French Polynesia for visitors is Bora Bora, which is known as the Jewel of the South Seas. It's very popular for couples and newlyweds, but as we can testify, also fantastic for a girl's trip. Um, In Bora Bora, it's known for um, the uh, coral reef that protects the island, which creates this beautiful crystal lagoon. There are many high-end luxury properties that have fantastic resorts there with over-the-water bungalows. I can't say enough good things about Bora Bora, but I know, Michelle, you um, had actually the time of your life and the opportunity to try new things in Bora Bora. I did. I would say that that is um, by far my um, favorite vacation that I have ever taken as an adult, at least. Um, Just a fantastic place. I would say that if um, any of our listeners ever have the opportunity to save up and uh, be able to go do it, you uh, will not regret it. One of the things that I decided before going was that there were opportunities to try new things, and so I was going to spend the money to do them. And on a day in Bora Bora, a friend and I took a helicopter ride over the island and over a private island there that is in the shape of a heart and really got to experience the um, barrier reef that uh, Sandy talked about. And I would just say that it was a truly amazing way to see the beautiful island that's very lush, um, all of the different colors of blue that were in the water. And you could even see sea life from the helicopter because the water is that clear. So I would say that if you're ever going to do a helicopter ride, that is certainly the place to do it. It is worth the money. And um, as far as um, trying new things, uh, this part wasn't necessarily new. I took a riverboat cruise one day, but I learned a lot of things on this cruise about the culture throughout French Polynesia. Our tour guide for the day was a man who was probably about 77 years old and had led a very different life than I had ever thought about or experienced. Um, So throughout French Polynesia and Bora Bora, they live a very simple life. Um, They don't have many of the conveniences that we do, like um, many don't have internet. They don't have um, food that they really bring in. Um, So they eat off the island. And uh, I remember 
one of the uh, ladies on the boat said, so what do you do for meat besides uh, seafood and fish on the island? And he said, did you see those chickens running around town as you got on the boat? Well, those are wild chickens. You just go and pick one up and you kill it. (laughs) And um, that's how you do it. And um, they, of course, have fruit trees everywhere and um, grow quite a few vegetables on the island. So it's self-sustaining. So this 77-year-old man um, informed us that, you know, polygamy is still alive and well on um, the island of um, Bora Bora and throughout French Polynesia. And he had, um, if my memory serves me right, somewhere between 20 and 25 children and somewhere over 60 grandchildren. And um, these were spread across many wives. And someone said, how do you support all of them? And he said, I don't. He said, the village does. And I help. He said, everybody raises your children. Everybody provides for them. You help other people. They help you. And um, so it really brought to life for me the phrase, it takes a village. When -hmm. you have that many children, Mm -hmm. it takes a village. (laughs) And um, so for me, it was very interesting to see their world and have different experiences of just talking to um, people who appreciated things that I take for granted on a daily basis. Yeah. Isn't it amazing what you find when you start talking to the locals in any of the island nations Mm -hmm. that we have talked about today, when you you step away from your U.S. vacation perspective and simply make a human connection with someone and ask them a question about who they are and what their lifestyle is like, I find that you are uh, richly rewarded. Yeah, very much. I was glad that it was a small boat cruise. There were probably only 15 of us on the boat. So we all got to ask him quite a few questions and hear his answer to everybody's questions. So we learned a lot. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. What a trip around the world this has been. Uh, Thank you for sharing this virtual experience with us today. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today and you'd like to hear more about our travel experiences, please check out our website. That's leadtravelpray.com. If you haven't checked us out yet, know that we recently posted our 100 travel tips tips uh, for your upcoming real adventures out in this world. Thanks for listening today. And please do share your feedback with us. Let us know what you like and what you'd like to hear about in a future podcast. You can reach us directly via our website again at leadtravelpray.com. 